Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Christiana Best, host of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was developed for and by colleges and universities and its surrounding and supporting communities. The goal of the podcast is to inform, educate, and build community as well as inspire change. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of any college, university, or institution. You guys, you guys know each other? Yeah. I know people. <laughs> I know one personally, and the other two I've heard phenomenal things about, and have tried to um, recently. I've been trying to actually get in contact with Ashley, so I am glad to be on this with you, sis, and to see you. Well, it's great. Well, it's really. I don't even need to do an intro now, but um, <laughs> what I will say is, that welcome to Inside Out, Outside In podcast. This podcast is for and by colleges and universities, but we're also very interested in communities, particularly uh, black and brown communities, because more and more of our students are coming from black and brown communities. Um, And our podcast is framed by the themes of inclusion, diversity, and equity. And so today's episode is uh, titled COVID-19 and Equity. So we are really very interested in learning about the communities that you served and how how it has been impacted by COVID-19. We know the statistics. It has been disproportionately um, impacted our communities. Um, But in addition to that, we wanted to understand what was going on on the ground. My name is Christiana Best, and I am an assistant professor at the University of St. Joseph. And I'm going to just introduce you based on your bio, and then I thought we could just continue with the conversation we started, right? We started having a conversation about, oh, about our young men. Melinda having, being the mother of two, two young boys. Because in the midst of the COVID-19, um, our community is also compounded by the killing of black bodies. And we've seen a rash of them. And so we can't ignore that. We have to talk about how that's impacting us in our bodies as well as our, in our communities, right? So by, I'm going to start by introducing Ashley Blunt. Ashley is a community organizer, facilitator, and lover of art. Um, Currently, she serves as deputy director for CT Core. She is involved in Organize Now and NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Ashley believes that the survival of our ancestors lets lets us know that we, we have all that we need among us. So Ashley, I'm looking to hear more about that. It sounds like you're going to be tapping into our resilience. Um, (laughs) Next is Melinda Johnson. Melinda is an advocate and and an innovator. She's dedicated to serving her community. She's also the Director of Community Engagement and Advocacy for the YWCA Hartford Region, a really big job. Uh, She serves as the leading lady of Urban Hope Refuge Church and a commissioner of 
the Permanent Commission on the Status of Hartford Women. Wow. She believes equity and justice will only coexist when voices of black and brown people are centered in policy reform and economic restructuring. Melinda is also the wife of Pastor Ashley J. Johnson and the mother of two lovely boys. I said lovely, she said amazing. <laughs> Welcome, Melinda. Um, next is Justin Farmer. Justin is a 25-year-old activist and elected official, and he's serving his second term as a legislative councilman representing Hamden's 5th District. Justin experience, uh, Justin's experience as a community organizer has an instru instrument, is instrumental sorry, in building some of the strongest grassroots campaigns in the state's history. He will be on the ballot August 11 to represent the town of Ansonia, Bethany, Beacon Falls, Derby, Hamden, Nagatuck, and Woodbridge. Did I get all that right? Okay, I'm new to Connecticut, so <laughs> this is all new to me, all the names are new to me. And last but certainly not least is Patrick Williams. Hi, Patrick. Patrick is an organizer and works with The Undocumented. He's also an author, and through his writings and content creation, Patrick helps people in, to inherently value their stories confronting the ever danger of silence. I like that. I'd like to hear more about that as well. And Patrick is Jamaican. He recently became a naturalized citizen in a country that is plagued by systemic racism. I edited a little bit, Patrick. <laughs> so welcome, guys. How are you guys doing today? Great. I Glad to be here. Great. Um, so my, my first question to generate and guide the discussion is, how has COVID-19 impacted your community? Um, so I guess like there, um, so again, thanks for having us. Um, but I think it would depend, right? Because like it depends, I guess it depends also on what community you're referring to, because there are a lot of like intersections too. So um, for me, um, a lot of my work as of late has been like kind of like diving into immigrant work and like just general immigration stuff. So I think one of the reasons I was brought to this conversation is because of the work we're doing with CTI and DocuFund. Um, and in that population specifically, a lot of people are undocumented and therefore are not privy to um, any relief that the government gives, right? So like um, a lot of those people work hourly wages under the table. So a lot of those people like just, just when all these things happen, they either lost hours or they lost work. So like those people specifically, there was no lifeline. So what we decided to do as an organization was come together and like do, do a grassroots campaign of like re-education, but also trying to find ways to put money in people's hands. Um, because a lot of the problems that we have, like they're like, like they're, they're overlaps and they're intersections too, but I think um, that is a portion of the population that is here that is largely ignored, right? So um, that was one of the things too. And there's generally around black just and like also generally around blackness because like a lot of my work trends there too um we are dealing with generations of trauma and um knowing that covid is something that like that specifically um affects us more because of systemic reasons that just compounds to the trauma yeah absolutely 
Um, so communities that are already traumatized due to historical and co collective trauma is further um, traumatized by uh, sheltering in place and all that comes with this disease, right? Okay, great. Well, thank you. Yes, I was expecting that you would shed some light on the undocumented. Um, most people don't have a full sense of that community per se. Um, so um, I guess, Melinda, you can go next. Um, I, I'm thinking you identify your community both at the YW, um, the YWCA and also in your church. Would that yes. be accurate? Okay. Yes, definitely. Um, so with the YW, we really focus on the intersection of women of color. Um, so our racial equity uh, work is coupled with our gender equity work. And so when we look at women in the Hartford region as a whole, we recognize that women of color, when they kept talking about these essential workers, those were our people, those were our women, um, those were our family members, those were our, the people that are coming out of these very same communities who were the very last to receive PPE and the very last communities to receive testing. Um, so what are we, how are we feeling now as we talk about entering into phase two of the reopening of the state? Um, Honestly, I feel like in our communities, there's still a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of grief, and a lot of, um, a lot of a feeling of, so what? So what? We've done all this work to make our voices heard. We've done all of this protesting and all of this shouting and all of this screaming and all of this activism. So what? If, if we've done all of these things, if at the end of the day, the systems that have been oppressing us still don't change. So I feel like um, as a community, there's not a, not, a, not a faint of heart feeling, but there is a, a disturbance in us where we're, we're at that place where we're taking action now. Um, mm -hmm. And then personally, on a personal note, from the, the, the lens of being uh, part of a sub-community in my church, we're, we're grieving, we're mourning the space of where we worshiped together, we're, we're mourning not being able to reach out and touch a neighbor and, and we're mourning the lack of the laying on of hands and we're mourning those those things that we took for granted that glued us together um as a spiritual body so while we're still having like our cyber sanctuaries and and doing uh, parades by members houses to, to stay in touch there is still very much so a gap and a hole that's hard to fill when you think about how much um, physical presence is important to just being human. Right, being human, but also very key to our culture, right? It's right. touching. In church, you reach out and touch your neighbor, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say this and I'll, and I'll hush, but um, Sister <laughs> Anyango, uh, who is a good friend of mine, um, and a friend of the YW, and just a friend to so many. I know that she's probably a friend of everybody on this phone call. Um, she said something in a conversation that we were having on a Facebook Live, and she said, you know, what we take for, for, for naught at this moment is that individuals from the Black diaspora, we are accustomed to grieving and mourning and moving through the motions of these, these emotions that we have together. We're not used to doing this isolated. And mm -hmm. with the social distancing and with the shelter in place, it hasn't allowed us to process as a community the way that we usually would. Right. Particularly when we lost loved ones, right? Or when mm -hmm. they're hospitalized. We're not able to go to the hospital and be with them. Right. That is so artificial what is happening now. It's Yeah. In, in my church alone, um, a, a dear member of ours lost her father 
and her brother in the same mm -hmm. week yeah. and um, had to figure out as a family how to do a funeral and how to bury them while another brother was still in the hospital having no contact with the family struggling with the COVID-19. Um, wow. A praise report is that he's moved out of the ICU, but that is in the wake of losing two family members. And how do you, how do you cope with that when you didn't get to go face to face and say goodbye, right. when at a funeral you can't hug one another and love on one another the way that right. would fortify you? Right. It's, it's a hard time. Yeah. I, I mean, more than more and more, I've realized that funerals are for the living, right? Those of us are left behind because it's, a, it's the way we say goodbye and the way we love each other and support each other. So, oh my God, I can't imagine what that's like. Two in one week. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So um, we have Ashley, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, I will go next. Uh, that's, that story just resonated because I lost my grandma um, so in the midst of COVID. Um, and coming from a very strong, strong, strong Pentecostal background, um, not being able to have a homegoing service for her um, was pretty difficult. Um, already grieving and not being able to, to touch and um, I had to drive to New Jersey and it was like almost not sure if I should hug my mother. Um, and those are a lot of the stories that are not really being told at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, so just to lift that up, we as a community are going through quite a bit. Um, our ways of being, um, have been stripped and we have to innovate, um, as we always do. <laughs> we have to innovate and imagine and to have new ways of being. Um, with that being said, uh, some of the work that I have been doing when COVID first hit, uh, we actually had a call with leaders of color around the state. Um, it was actually that same week that the governor um, closed the schools um, and put the stay in place order in place. Um, and it was like, what are we going to do? And it was to essentially take care of each other. Um, and how a lot of mutual aid and things started to unravel out of that, um, and just to see how community came together. In those first month, in that first month of mutual aid work and reaching out to the community, all those funds came from the community. There was no funders involved. There was uh, no government or uh, large organizations reaching out. That was all community dollars that went to helping and supplying needs for each other. Um, so that is one thing that we do great in community. We ensure that we have all that we need. Um, uh, so in my community, there have been folks who have experienced job loss. Um, and currently right now, a lot of those folks are still not back at work and a large population of folks not even being sure if they have a job to go back to. Wow. Uh, so a lot uh, of the work that has come out of that has been the Cancel Rent Coalition, uh, where their group of grassroots organizers uh, made up of uh, renters and tenants who are calling for Governor Lamont to cancel rent. Here in the state of Connecticut, over 500,000 people have um, filed for unemployment benefits since the shutdown. Um, you think about thousands of people have filed for unemployment. 
Think about how many more people are in that household uh, that will be houseless if the governor does not cancel rent at this time. Uh, so those are the things that we're working through, folks. Um, and again, we have resilience. We make a way out of no way. Um, and also organizers, grassroots organizers at this time are essentially fighting to ensure that we do not experience another wave of a, a even deeper crisis. Right. Um, it's also important to recognize that these are not your large or nonprofits. These are like not your large corporate uh, organizations. The, these are grassroots and community members that are coming together and doing this work. Um, so even though it's a rough time, what my community is going through is really experiencing what it looks like and how it feels to take care and be for each other. Great. Thank you. Sounds like you're doing a lot of good work. And when we circle back, I'd like to hear about some of the grassroots work that are being done and how the audience or, you know, anyone listening can help you in getting this cancellation of rent coalition to have a more prominent voice, you know? Thank you. So Justin, yeah. hi there. How are you? I am younger and wiser. Um, <laughs> it, it has been a couple of weeks. Um, uh, so thank y'all uh, to be in community with you um, in terms of figuring out what, how to serve my community. Um, it, it's been a little difficult in the sense that because I'm running for a larger office, I'm going from trying to represent one community to seven communities um, and try to bring it together on how we're together and also how we're different in that. Um, so that has been a unique challenge. And I guess from a governmental side, um, the federal government, um, uh, well, we're in this because they haven't shown much leadership in the first place. Um, the governor has had mixed messages from $600 is too much for community members who've been out of work for months. Um, you know, temporary cancellation uh, of, of rent. Um, and then, you know, spending that again. And at the local level, uh, we've kind of been left our own devices to kind of figure out how we bring community together. So for me, um, I live on the borderline of Hamden and New Haven. And then the first couple of weeks, um, I had a lot of conversations like, cool, we're doing food assistance. Are we having conversations with our sister city so that we're not duplicating services or we're not sending, uh, for instance, New Haven was housing some um, uh, homeless people in our community, but then we were telling them to go to the New Haven Food Bank. Um, so we were having people travel five miles to go and get food and then travel five miles back. Um, and I said, you know, why don't we just let them use the Hamden Food Bank? Mm -hmm. Like they might not be part of our community, but mm -hmm. in the immediacy, wouldn't it make more sense logistically and resource wise, especially if we're trying to keep everyone uh, indoors as much as possible for them to go to the Hamden Food Bank? rather than to figure out how to get on the city bus to get to New Haven. There's been a lot of triage like that of working with different organizations and different communities to figure out how we put things together 
Right. And then the aftermath, um, thinking about how we, uh, as a state, as communities, figure out the best way to serve people, because COVID is probably going to affect us for another two or three years. So it's really figuring out what do we do now in the immediacy, but then how do we plan for the future? Um, and in that sense, um, I'm realizing that not only that our central workers are mostly us, people of color, black people, uh, um, those who are most marginalized, but I think this has opened our eyes to the fact that, you know, from the merchant I talked to who built sales, who's saying my business won't recover, to the high school student who's trying to figure out how to finish, um, you know, finish their uh, high school career, but also is an essential worker and has to go in and has to do online courses to mm. elderly grandmother that used to volunteer at the food bank, who now their health may be compromised and now they have to figure out how do they come to this work. So community, I think a lot of my work recently has been figuring out what does community mean? Um, yes. Yeah. I appreciate being in this community. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it's really important to hear about what's going on with the community. I mean, we often don't think about our homeless population, right? Um, things were bad for them before COVID, and it's on steroids now, I'm sure, you know? Um, uh, do you find that the, the essential workers are able to, in fact, go in and work um, with the homeless? Uh, is that happening? Or do you find that many of them are also experiencing um, illnesses as a result of it and are not able? Is there any, you know, how is that working out? A lot of people have been able to keep safe uh, through donations of PPE and um, manufacturers thinking, uh, I know one our economic developer got in touch with a manufacturer to make PPE. We had high schoolers, um, in fact, I have one right here, high schoolers 3D print face shields for the community. So it, the workers for the most part have been pretty safe. Okay. Um, but but it, you know, it's a difficulty where you never know who will get sick and then it's figuring out how do we isolate them from the community, but also realize that they are still part of the community. Even in isolation, you are part of the community. Right, right. Wow, wow. So that whole idea also, I and this question is for anyone, the multi-generational households, how are they doing where you may have young children, adults, young adults, as well as, you know, the elderly? Um, and sometimes in these households, they don't have an opportunity to isolate in a, you know, in a basement like some privileged people can do, right? Um, how is that? How is the multi-generational households in black and brown communities dealing with COVID-19? In, in my opinion, um, it's Melinda, in my opinion, uh, it's the innovation that Ashley was talking about is critical in this moment inside your house, like not even in work environments, even though the work environment has collapsed and been put inside of our households. 
but in the household innovation has been important personally for me. Um, my mother-in-law is, I believe, 75 years old. If I'm giving her a little bit more grace than she needs, then she won't mind. But I believe she's 75 years old. And she lives in Manchester. And my boys would have gone to her house and slept over all the time. That's, that's what she, was, she loved. That, that meant a lot to her. And for the past three months, um, just until recently, we've started to be like, okay, we were quarantined, you were quarantined. We know we all got it. We can finally cross some of these lines. Right. But for those first three months, the, the strain of not being able to connect with a loved one was hurtful. So things that my mother-in-law did was um, to alleviate some time for me to focus on the work that I need to do. She would do story time via FaceTime. And oh. she had a little a little teddy bear named Snowy that she, she made the new friend for my son, Ashton. And then Ashton will ask me, can I have story time with Nana and Snowy? I'm like, who's Snowy? It was a teddy bear. Um, but even at, at her age, uh, wow. being able to think innovatively of how do right. I still connect to my grandkids, I think that that's meant everything. On the other hand, um, through our church, our church mothers are very much just like our mothers. Um, and our church mother just turned 90 years old on Mother's Day, Mother Virgie Canty. Wow. And we did a drive-by service for her. Um, and we're outside in her community making a whole lot of noise that they weren't used to. And that meant everything for her. She stood outside and um, she is one of those Southern women that still has very much so a pride about her. And no matter how much we honked and hollered and sang, she just stood with such a pride, but in her heart, it meant my people came looking for me. They still love uh, me. They still know that I'm here. Right. And I think that more than anything is what, what, what's uh, needed at this time, is making sure people know, well, I'm still thinking about you just because I can't see you every day. I still love you. You're, you're still important to this equation. Right. Thank you for that. Thanks for that story. Those stories are so important, right? Uh, they show a resilience and innovation. Great. Um, Ashley, were you going to say something? I was just uh, going to mention in that intergenerational household, I know folks who work every day and also live with their grandmoms. Uh, so it is literally stripping at the door, having a bathroom at the door, going to the bathroom, taking a shower and pressing forward. Um, handling that situation with Kara, knowing that I need to go to work and able to uh, support myself and my family. Uh, and also I got to take care of grandma, like grandma right. has to be okay. Um, also thinking about my grandma and her being in a hospital um, and also folks who I know who have um, grandparents in nursing homes at this time, like not being able to visit um, and what that feels like. And, you know, back to what Melinda's saying, like letting me know that you're there. Uh, so I have a phone call list. I have reminders to make sure I check on my church mothers. Um, even though I'm not in Brooklyn where my parents, um, my father pastors a church, there are some church mothers that I'm still very connected to um, and call and reach out to and see how they are doing. Um, also join church just for a little bit, just to see them on Zoom so they know. <laughs> that I'm thinking about them and that we are still here. Um, so it's very important to reach out in those ways. Um, mm -hmm. Knowing that um, Mother Bibi is not, you know, really savvy with the Facebook or Instagram, like I really have to dial that number and give her a call. Um, right. And how important it is in care, especially for our older folks, like how important it is to um, be contacted. 
um, and still keep those relationships at this time. Yeah. I have a friend who was talking to me about running errands for her elderly neighbor, making sure that she, you know, got her groceries and drop it off for her. Is that something that some of your communities are in need of? And are they receiving some of those um, community support? Yeah, like, so I can speak to, um, so uh, my day job is, I, I, I'm, a, I'm the interim director of community schools for like um, Catholic Charities. So, mm -hmm. um, so we, so we are, we're looking, we have relationships. So we kind of oversee the relationships at, um, Madonna Middle School and Milner Middle School. And, um, so initially we weren't, um, <clears throat> sorry. So initially we weren't, um, we were not seen as essential workers and we just, and, but because we knew about the families that we had and the families that we were working with and families that we were providing support to throughout the school year, we realized that, look, if they don't have the supplies that they need during the regular school year, this is worse. So like, we had to kind of like force our hand um, and I think what I love, the beauty I see in my community is like, um, we're doing it occupationally while also doing it, um, with organizations that we're creating, right? So, um, mutual fund, um, uh, cancer rent campaign, like, like I've seen so many wonderful examples of like people saying, Hey, um, we need to kind of like pitch in to help each other because we, some people have it, some people don't. And like, I think it's been really cool to see how people have been like sharing their resources and finding ways to kind of connect um we were doing basic needs for like for weeks and then we um and we were able to kind of like connect with other organizations too with ct on docufund like the goal was to raise seventy five thousand dollars. we've exceeded that but it's but like while in the process of doing that we realized that like we put the application out and within 10 minutes that that like it froze the, the, the demand was too high right so as much as we're doing on a um as much as we're doing on like a ground level, grassroots level, like we need solutions to be on a state governmental, on a gubernatorial level too. Cause again, we're doing as much as we can, but like, it's not enough. Like we're trying really hard and we're doing all the best that we can and we're working ourselves into exhaustion doing it, but we're barely scratching the surface. And the idea is yes, the community is trying to take care of each other, but like we need government, we need government to step in and do their part as well because like it's it's wearing on a lot of people um yeah. but yeah like we've seen a lot of these services and like people have been able to chip in everybody else can speak more to like their experiences but um yeah we a lot of our work has like been grounded based on like and just helping to meet the needs of the people around us yeah so people are collaborating organizations are collaborating but we need the government support as well right you need it yeah. with the cancellation of the rent temporarily as well as providing for families that um, need the services particularly the undocumented um so melinda i'm thinking about the church community and i'm thinking about I know that many churches, in, particularly black churches in Connecticut, have food pantries and they, there are all these different committees that are supporting the community, whether they are actively participating in the church or not. Um, what are some things that are going on in your church that um, are supporting some of the community members? Sure, I can um, illuminate some of that work and some work that's going on at the YW um, in that aspect. So with the church, um, when COVID-19 first took place and we thought to ourselves, you know, people are going to be out of work, they're not going to have food, especially in our communities. Where my church sits is on the corner of Weston and Barber Street, and that's a red line district. So uh, there's never been, um, since 
since Martin Luther King died, there has not been a functional grocery store um, mm. on the North End on that side of town. Um, so uh, the food desert is real. And so my husband and I had an idea of what if we put out like outside the outside of the church since we can't be in there running breakfasts. What if we put outside of the church um, something where people could go and get food? And the immediate feedback that we got from people, mostly people that weren't actually from our community, they said, you know, oh, don't you think somebody's going to steal all the food and sell it on the street? Or don't you think um, people are going to vandalize it? Or we got all the naysayers, but. To again, to what Ashley's saying, to what Justin's saying, to what Pat's saying, you have to believe in your community. You have to be believe that we've been resilient for a long time. You have to believe that we know how to come together and take care of one another. And so we created a little storehouse um, that was stocked with pampers, uh, grocery items, just the bare essentials that we knew families would need around us. Until this day, it is stocked on a, um, a, a every other day basis. And People come, they're respectful, they get what they need, and they go on about their business. Because at the end of the day, people are human enough to recognize that they are not the only ones in need. And in our communities, this picture has been painted as if we are savages living in rubble, that we can't take care of one another and we can't take care of ourselves. But that's not the case at all. And then I'll, I'll summarize by saying at the YW, um, we're responsible for uh, approximately 93 individuals. We have uh, permanent supportive housing on, on campus as well as um, transitional housing uh, and emergency sheltering. And um, those are families. Some are individuals, but some are families or they're someone's family member. And we were recognizing that these people had a need to go out and get their groceries and do these different things. So we adapted to the needs of um, our residents and made sure that uh, we were putting out our, our appeals for donations to not just be monetary donations, not just the grants and those things, but we need food for people. We need um, PPE for people before they received all the PPE on the state level and were distributing it. We needed it long before then. And our community definitely responded and recognized the need to help those that already were starting off down and out before COVID-19 even started, so. Right, great, thank you. That's very innovative, what you and your husband did. Excellent. It's always good to change that narrative, right? That perception that has been put out there of us and how we operate with each other. But the community is strong and the support is always there. So I would like to ask the same of you, um, what are some of the um, symbols or evidence of resiliency that you've seen in your respective communities? What does it look like? I, I would argue, you know, I've seen tons of people uh, between church communities, activist groups, um, where people have been making thousands of face masks um, and just, you know, I carry around face masks with me, but I've seen so many other people go like, hey, where's your face mask? Oh, you don't have one? Well, I have one for you. Um, I've seen in the, the cultural communities I am, things like prayer shawls um, being delivered to hospitals where people have been taking their time to uh, make them and then deliver it to the hospital uh, and have that reverence where even though we can't go into the hospitals, um, those resources, those tools uh, can be shared. So uh, I would say, heck, the students who are making PPE their own uh, and making sure that um, 
frontline workers can have access to it. I think that has shown a unique capacity that we can build our own institutions uh, like the, um, you know, the rapid response networks. We can uh, create our own tools and in many ways uh, our own coalitions uh, just speaking on uh, what's going on with the prisons and seeing all the different prison yeah. advocate groups coming together and talking about, you know, we need to release people, but we also need to create a plan. And we're not waiting for the state to create a plan. We're going to give you the playbook. And here are our expectations of when we expect you to meet our deadlines. Uh, so I feel it's very self-evident. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you. I'll, I'll speak to um, the uprisings of the movement for Black Lives right now and how that shows our resiliency, um, how even in the midst of a global pandemic, um, Black folks and those who support their life are out there ensuring that the powers that are in place currently um, know that we won't stand for another one. Um, and that definitely shows resiliency. Um, and even those who are not going out on the streets and protesting are utilizing what they have to spread that word. Um, my timeline, my timeline is so black. It has never been as black in all of Instagram history. Everything I see is black, 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 black. And I'm loving it. I will say I am loving it. Um, <laughs> and... Um, it shows just our strength and our brilliance, how um, we are um, taking, we're taking this moment where we have everyone's attention, where everyone is at home, whether it be working from home or, you know, whatever, we're taking that time to really mobilize our folks. Uh, people who I've never seen organizing are out there organizing because we have that space and capacity to do so. And a lot of the conversations I've been thinking about is like, that's why they got us out here working. So we won't <laughs> uprise against them. Like, you know, to see thousands and thousands of people come out in Hartford, um, in the state capitol, um, and move and say that Black lives matter. Um, that was really a moment for me, especially being in the state of Connecticut, which is overwhelmingly white, um, and not just by white folks, but by whiteness. And have folks really um, stay out in the street, have folks sleep outside of police stations, and really say, we are not moving until you give us what we need. We demand justice. And the fearlessness um, and the audacity it takes to sleep outside for days at a time, and yeah. also the community support that it takes to ensure that we are safe while we are sleeping outside. I mean, it. It, in the midst of the trauma and the despair, it just shows the beauty of community. And when we come together, we are a beautiful people. Um, and I hope that we, we hold that in our hearts as we continue. Yes, we are out here. <laughs> we are so out here. Thank you for that, Ashley. Uh, Ashley, jumping on your bandwagon, <laughs> just saying that the movement that has been transitioning from all that energy that we had and doing the protests and doing the rallies is now shifting into policy and I'm loving it. I feel like special session is about to be the blackout because they've seen more black agendas than they have had in the past. Um, I know for, for us um, at the YWCA, while we've always been on the mission, now our pinpoint focus and 
the, the ability to be unapologetic about what we're here for, uh, it, it really means something to us. And my husband and I were laughing the other day because people nowadays in modern times don't think that the church should have any footing in policy and in government. And recently our church at Urban Hope Refuge just put out an agenda specific to black American communities saying, don't only just recognize that this is a uh, public health crisis, racism is a public health crisis, but do something about it and right. address it in these specific areas because these specific systemic oppressions have been taking out our community and impacting our health through stress, through physical death, through so many other areas. But I am loving right now the, the fact that our people we are not just passionate and able to, to pull together rallies and do these different things, but we are intelligent and we have power together and we're pushing for policy. That's wonderful. That's um, can can I add like really quickly? Yes. Like, so agreed with everything everybody says, 100%, can't wait for the blackout. But also like, <laughs> I think it's gonna make like, for me, resilience has looked like a lot of people realizing the need for affinity spaces. So I've seen like, so, um, myself and AJ, we have something called the black, we have something called called kickback. But again, even seeing so um, uh, Godfrey Godfrey Simmons from Heartbeat Ensemble, they have a, a BIPOC affinity space as well. But like people finding and creating community spaces um, for Black folks, to, like for Black folks to kind of like speak and process and chill and do all the things that they need to do. Um, but also seeing that like there are white groups out here like doing the work in their own in their own spaces too. So just trying to see how like everybody's like. Everyone is trying to find their community and find their spaces and find their way in the work and they're doing it together. So they're creating a lot of community. Resilience looks like creating spaces for people to just relax and, and just kind of like debrief and breathe and be well mentally. And we're creating those as well too. And I think for me, we spend a lot of time talking about resiliency and not necessarily like taking off the armor. People are actively taking off the armor and I love it. What you just said, Patrick, you said not um, talking about resiliency and not the, I guess the equation of that to me would be rest and how important it is for us to also rest. And part of that rest is that processing. Part of that rest is like creating spaces where we can have joy um, and just like be. And to that like resiliency, we um, had a community altar building um, on Juneteenth. And that was our way of celebrating and Justin was out, yo, I can't wait to share that video of Justin getting it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Justin caught, this, caught the spirit. Um, and at that session, I was saying, like, we hearing the drums play, and it does something to us. Like, I don't care where you're from. You hear those drums going, it does something to your body. And when we let the spirit move, I'm going to share that video later of Justin. <laughs> um, <laughs> but creating those spaces where we can experience that joy and the altar that we created during this time um, it was for Black women um, and women with the next Black women who have been murdered by state-sanctioned violence. Um, and I, it's important for me to bring that up and just take a moment for that, um, because as we were preparing for that event, there were so many names that I found that I have never heard before. Mm. There have been so many Black women that have been murdered at the hands of the state. Um, and I know um, what has been uplifted in the media are Black men. Um, and yes, very important. And also, and also, and just as equally important, we need to say her name. Mm -hmm. There are so many Black women um, that have been uh, brutally murdered 
Um, <laughs> you know, and this goes from seven to 93. So wow. from age seven years old to a 93 year old, they killed somebody's Nana. The mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it's important for us when we're having this conversation about black lives and the movement for black lives and all black lives matter to understand that women are just in harm's way, just as much as black men. Um, and it's important for us to keep saying that and to keep saying her name. Thank you for that. Very important. Um, so how do we take care of ourselves? I mean, you guys are doing a great deal. Some of you are working both, you have your regular job, you have your job at home, and you're in church or doing community work. Um, how are you taking care of yourself? What does self-love looks like? And what does community love looks, look like for you? I just ask you to jump in, whoever would like to. Um, I am a therapy enthusiast. Um, like, um, that has been helpful. Um, I am like, I, I want to say like I'm a couple weeks after, like, so like I'm, I'm, so I have been in therapy consistently for like a little bit over a year. Um, this is like my second go at it, but again, it's, but it's, it's, but like having that space is important. It's, it's, it's a space that people don't typically talk about. And there's a stigma around it and we need to get rid of it because we need a space to process. And again, there's so much work that needs to be done. There's so much, like, there's so much work that needs to be done that we need to have a place to kind of like go through the feelings and deal with our own stuff, right? Because again, we're all carrying our own stuff and it kind of, we're carrying our own stuff and it informs how we see the work, right? So um, we need a place to put that. Um, so that connecting with people, because again, the thing about COVID is like, it, the, <laughs> the thing about COVID is like, it's working. The, the way to stop it is for people to pull apart. We have to find new ways to actually actively engage and be there with each other, whether it be like scheduled Zoom calls, whether it be like going on, what is it, the, the, the app with the games and stuff, whatever it is, right? But again, we just need to find ways to connect because like COVID is trying to steal our connections. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for that. And if you don't mind, if you know of any Black therapists in the Connecticut area, just put it in the chat so that folks can have access to it. Quite literally, all you have to do, and this is what I did when I was doing my search, right? I, um, I went, I, I, I Googled Black Therapist Connecticut because I knew, like, for many other reasons, they would have to be a person, like, a smite specifically Black. Like, literally, you can Google it. It's going to bring you to, like, a site that says, like, um, um, Psychology Today, and there's going to be a ridiculous list of them. That's how okay. I found mine. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's important to have a therapist who can understand systemic racism and what you're experiencing. Yep. Very much so. Okay. Anyone shout out else? to therapy. <laughs> the therapy. Yeah. Oh, um, shout out to Becca. I see you putting the thing in there. I'm a social yeah. worker, so I'm, I'm always for therapy, including my own. <laughs> yes. Shout out to therapy. Ther I say, I tell my parents often, I say, therapy has saved lives. Not necessarily mine, but other people's <laughs> lives. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it definitely has. Uh, for me, it's self-care. It really looks like uh, tossing my phone somewhere and me acting like I don't know where it's at. Um, that's really real as an organizer. Um, it also um, looks like going out in the garden and pulling up weeds. I don't know nothing else about the farm, but all I know, I know that's a weed and it gotta go. Um, so that has been really helpful. Um, 
speaking about that process, and I thought about what Patrick said again about um, being with each other and processing, uh, journaling has really helped me to do that, um, to really journal how I'm feeling in the moment and to sometimes go back and see from where I have come um, and like being grateful in those moments when I look back um, and saying, yes, I got over that, lets me know that whatever I'm going through at this moment, I can get over that as well. Great. Um, and being creative. So I love art. So I make jewelry. I made these earrings. Oh, um, <laughs> for like a whole week, I was off. My roommates know all I did was sit on the couch and make earrings. So um, <laughs> making jewelry, doing stuff with my hands, being creative has also been very helpful to just chill um, and to be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Up and down the bike. Oh. Up and down the bike, you said? Hopping on the bike, I, I I bike around for transportation, and I, you know, I do 10, 15 miles a day, just wow. to like get, just to get places to and from. And as soon as COVID hit, and like I didn't have the excuse to be on the bike, I after like a month and a half, I was like, nope, I'm like bet, I'm gonna hop on this bike and I'm gonna go somewhere. I don't know when I'm gonna come back. Text messages, phone calls coming in. I can't think I'm, I'm riding the bike can't help you <laughs> um so definitely just getting out sightseeing physical exercise get yourself a bike <laughs> you can't get them nowadays they're like so <laughs> scarce <laughs> they are yeah, so everyone is biking <laughs> go ahead yeah. Melinda. um so for me, uh, being a mom, it'd be nice to have some time on myself, but <laughs> bedtime has become like the time to put them down and for me to like follow up on my reports and all the et cetera things that I should be able to like focus on that I have no focus for during daylight hours. Right. But I keep telling myself that, you know, self-care today means more than just like going for the mani-pedi and getting your hair done. Self-care today is really what are you doing for self-preservation? What are you doing to not lose your mind? What are you doing to keep it together? Because the amount of pressures that we're under as individuals and as a community and as a society, to me, it's unheard of. I mean, other generations may say that they've seen some, some things and other than the Great Depression, I, I don't have anything really to compare this to. Right. Um, so for me, I mean, I, I used to do art. I used to, but the things that, the simple things that I can find now are like prayer. The simple <laughs> things I find now are like a glass of tea or a glass of wine on the swing in the backyard for 10 minutes, just 10, because that's all I get around here. But honestly, that and just talking to friends every once in a while. I see Brittany Yancey is on here, and I called Brittany this morning just to say, hey, I miss you, I love you, and just to hear somebody say, I miss and love you back. Those are things that I do for self-care. Otherwise, it's, it's a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Well, I, I, as I listen to you, I'm wondering, do you see any benefits from this pandemic and sheltering in place? Did anything positive come out of it that you can share? Patrick? Yeah, so like my mom's here. Like, so, um, so like I've spent more time in like typically what would happen is like I would leave the crib and I would not come back and like I, I would visit the crib like that's that's what it is right 
I've spent so much time here and been able to like have like really dope conversations with my mom and like just kind of connect in a way that we really haven't been able to do. Um, so like that's been really cool too. Um, but yeah, like I think also understanding the caveat being understanding that like things are what they are and a lot of people aren't in a good place. So this is coming from like a privileged stance. Um, having an opportunity to kind of like slow down has been helpful. We haven't done a lot of slowing down. But like having the opportunity to just get to kind of like connect with people who we probably wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have before. Um, even with me, like I bought it to like a friend of mine like sells t-shirts. So like I got a t-shirt from, from I went to go pick up the t-shirt from him, and literally we had like an hour and a half conversation, and I hadn't spoken to him in a while. Literally, we've been able to kind of like connect with people in a really in a really dope way, and even putting or putting things like this together, um, and calling people and connecting people with people to do stuff like that. Like I've been able to connect with people, people in a very real way who I haven't really been able to check on in a very long time. So I would say for me, um, being able to slow down and like again fight for the connection that like the epidemic is trying to take from us. Like um, I've been able to connect with a lot of people. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Anything positive that came out of this? There's always a silver lining, right? Justin? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I guess I have to bring hope. Um, um, you know, uh, Ashley spoke on whiteness in Connecticut and white spaces. Um, and, and it's been beautiful. I, I like to say the district is diverse. Um, others may say uh, it, it's gerrymandered. So to go to, you know, Naugatuck and see a thousand people saying Black Lives Matter, mm. I had the intention of being there and building community to see that, but to see that organically emerge was something that uh, I, I, I wasn't expecting to see. To go to Woodbridge and see people talk about what institutional racism looks like in Woodbridge, I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, where is Woodbridge? He <laughs> <laughs> can fall. You kind of imagine. <laughs> the most beautiful thing was going to Beacon Falls and everybody, you know, lined up and waving and saying hello. The town has four police officers. Oh, wow. And we're just sitting there waving and everybody passing by the main road. This week they have, uh, they have, uh, the grand opening of a Dunkin' Donuts. And like, that's big town news. The Dunkin' Donuts is opening up. And to like go into these spaces and see people have the affirmation for black lives and to talk about a joy of community and to see people remove uh, statues, the symbolism of things that used to separate us. I think that for me, I think you would have said two months ago, the statue in Worcester Square would have came down. Even it being in the midst of these movements, being on the front lines, I would have said, that's not happening. That's not possible. That's not happening. Maybe 10 years from now, maybe 20 years from now. But now, you know, I, I see a revolution happening all around the nation. And then even in here in Connecticut, where, again, to find out, I have friends texting me, oh, I'm in Hartford and there's, 
3,000 people here, and it's like, oh, I'm in New Haven, and there's 5,000 people here. Oh, no, you need to come out to Waterbury. There's 2,000 people here. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, there is a change coming. Right. Uh, so that is what I'm excited about. I feel that is the silver lining, is that we are starting to get that we are all essential and that we also realize that we can't move forward until Black Lives Matter to make sure that everybody truly matters. Great. Thank you for that. Patrick? Did you speak on this issue? Oh, yes, you did. You yeah, talked about went. your I connection with your mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was trying to make sure my phone didn't die in the middle of the conversation. Um, you know, I at the, the, the very beginning, I, I, I was saying to myself, you know, if I didn't have kids, my God, the things that I would create in this moment, the artists that I would be able to dedicate myself to, the the studies, you know, Yale has like free um, courses you can take right now as a result of this. I'd have been learning all kinds of things, <laughs> but uh, that is not my station in life right now. So I am excited for the people that will be emerging from this with brand new, amazing ideas and books and art and all of that, because somewhere right now, somebody is giving birth to these things, but I gave birth to two boys and the joy that I'm finding right now is I'm realizing how much time with them I would have missed if I was at work. Like, granted, I'm at work here, and it's a struggle. It honestly is. But to see my, my son um, turn three and then finally figure out how to curl his pinky in to do this <laughs> right here, that has meant everything. To watch my seven-month-old figure out how to sit up and now starting to grab things and learning how to stand up and remembering that I missed my other son's first step. The, the daycare sitter had to call me and show me on FaceTime when he was taking his first steps because I was at work. So being able to catch some of these key moments and their development, it, it means everything. It ain't easy, but it sure is uh, fulfilling and it's, it's filling me right now. Oh, I'm sure. That's a wonderful thing. I think it's a gift. It's a gift you should embrace. Um, so, Ashley, did you talk about resilience? I'm um, not resilience, but the silver lining. Sorry. I was gonna say that's all I talk about. I know. That's <laughs> <what I'm talking. laughs> I got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the silver lining, um, I'll say for me personally, has been to slow down, um, okay. and in that in that space. Um, to uh, really take a deep, deep look at self, um, why I do this work, who am I accountable to, um, and the legacy of it. Um, so it's been a lot of time, which hence the journal, just a lot of time reflecting um, and moving with intention. Um, as a collective, I'll say the silver lining has been the collective power seeing people who've never organized before organizing events and those events being very successful and those folks still carrying on with that, with that power and with organizing. Um, understanding, I'll say for me personally, the ultimate goal is to abolish the police. Um, and I think that's very possible at this time within, I'll give it six years, because that feels like a good number. Like, I feel that it's possible. If this, if the movement keeps at this momentum, that is very possible. Uh, in that, I'll say we abolish ICE in two years. 
Like I'm giving timeline. I've 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 taken some time Mm -hmm. to think about this and how this can be done uh, because I've had that space to slow down and really critically think about what we're doing, how we're moving, and why we're doing it. So abolish ICE in two years, abolish the police in the next six, um, I think is is what I've been thinking about. Uh, It is my silver lining to where I used to think about abolition and uh, abolishing of police. Oh, that that happened with my nephew's grandson. You know, now, right now, it's feeling like it, it is possible in my lifetime that these things can happen and it can be fully realized. Wow. And I want to, like, wow. quickly, I, I want to, like, really quickly, like, lift up something. Like, so, like, Deacon Arthur Miller is somebody who's, like, in this community. He's in Simsbury right now. Um, he is somebody who, like, went to school with Emmett Till. Um, he is, like, one of, if I ever have a question about movement work in general, that's who I call first, right? So like he was radicalized at 10 years old because Bo, as they called him, was killed, in the, was, was killed right? So we were, we were on a call recently and I think he said, he said two things, right? Two things I'm gonna leave everybody with because like it, it, it kind of like enforced the level of like hope that we're able to still carry. Um, so the first thing was like, um, they, they found out like after doing like a, a bunch of like, um, after doing like a bunch of surveys and like everything they had to do, through research they found out like 5% of the population was involved in like the civil rights era as we know it, right? And they were able to move the needle in a way that like is immeasurable, right? When we're looking at the country right now, it's a whole lot more than five. So think of how far we're gonna get. And like, the second thing was, he is now 85, he told me, so I'm gonna tell you, it's not, I'm not like, I'm not snitching. <laughs> like, um, he's 85 and he said that like, the, there's a there's a great quote that Martin Luther King has. This is like um, the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So he said like it's amazing that like in his 85 years he never thought to Ashley's point he never thought it would be something that he would be able to see right. But he's at, he's telling us he's telling us like the younger folks in the movement that look I see it bending, and because I see it bending, y'all got to keep on pulling it. So like that's the level of hope. Because again, like we measure progress generationally, right? It's not, it's not in my lifetime, it's generationally. So being able to hear that from him gives me more hope to go. I see. Well, thank you. Can you repeat his name again so that everyone can hear Deacon it? Deacon Arthur Miller. Deacon Arthur Great. Miller. Thank you for that. Now, as we conclude, I have a, uh, it's a two-part question. One is, um, <clears throat> if what, what words of wisdom do you have for your community, black and brown people? And the other is, if you had to speak to your governor, I was going to say your president, but if you had to speak to someone in your legislature or your governor, you know, what, what would you say on behalf of your community to them? What message do you want to communicate to them on behalf of your community? Um, so uh, I, I should probably start with Justin, the politician. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, we finna to vote for change August 11th. So I, like, that's the only thing I have to say. We can't have people who double talk. Um, and it's where have you been? And where are you? And it's just that simple. Like We finna to vote for change. So I said it here. I'll say it to him when I see him. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that. Um, Ashley? <laughs> All I could do is learn. 
because yeah, and I'm looking <laughs> at what a what a my friends in the in the chat. A girl has no president. Um, <laughs> thinking, <laughs> shout out to Sulinet. Uh, but if it, I would, I would, me and Owe would be, we would spar. So I wouldn't have any words to say to him. Um, but to the folks who we have elected, um, do better. <laughs> Hold yourself accountable. Listen to your people. Uh, I would, I can even speak locally for, um, the, the young folks, ooh, this made me smile so good even thinking about them. The young folks who are um, at the BAU who are doing, who are working on a campaign to defund HPD. Um, you know, it was interesting. I was in a meeting with them and, you know, young people, first time probably talking with a mayor. Um, and he's giving them all the mayor stuff. Um, and in that moment, I wanted to yell and scream, like, you know better, do better. <laughs> um, but it wasn't my moment to, to give him that. Um, but just, you know, you know who you represent. Um, these are folks who are uh, what we would deem well-educated, who went to schools and know the books. Um, You've read the books. You know what Black and brown communities go through. Uh, the mayor of Hartford, Mayor Luke Bronin, he's the mayor of a Black and brown city. Um, and he, he does not represent a black and brown city. He's the mayor of the city, but he does not represent the city. Um, so that would be my urge for them to listen to their community um, and take heed and then make some action happen. Because um, it's one thing for you to sit down and you might listen. You can have these conversations, but actually take action. Um, put some put some work behind your words is what I would say to them. If I would talk, <laughs> I would <say> like, <laughs> yeah. Cause thank you. <laughs> I think a lot. I think a lot of times you have like a talented Tentian like approach to the work, and the idea is that like the people with the degrees and the smart people are the ones who are like like. So a lot of people come into this space, and I've said this at like schools too. Like the idea is like a lot of people come into this place like and they they. they they come in and they come in with the intent of like fixing something or creating a new vision or whatever they want to do. And the, I, and, and like, they're not, they're not privy to like the, how their privilege got them there and how it kept other people from getting to the same place. Right. So the idea is, yes, you may, you, yes, you may be like um, bibliographically sound, but like you don't have the lived experience. And the idea is, and I think, um, I, um, Ashley or Melinda said it earlier, the idea of like trusting the people, like whatever the movements are, they have to be led by the people, right? So you may have, you, yes, you may have strategies. Yes, you may have like some, yes, you may have like a level of like history, something from the historical record, but trust and believe that the people who are there have that too, right? And I think a lot of it is like, when you come in, be humble and like know that this is not your space, you are helping and you're helping because we allow you to help. You're not working for us, you're working with us. Like it's an idea. Like, so I think a lot of it is like people come in with these attitudes and they come in with these platitudes and it's like, no, that's not what we're here for. Like, if you don't have, if you don't, if you don't come in and talk to people off top, nobody wants to hear what you want to say. Like you, you come in doing your research or do nothing at all. Right. Right. Thank you for that. Melinda. <laughs> Can you hear me? You, yeah. Okay. Okay. This took me a while to click the mute button. Um, 
yeah, and, and echoing everything everyone has already said, honestly, what I need the governor to understand right now, and governors throughout, throughout the nation, what they need to understand right now is what they can't do is say, whatever the demands that we are making, oh, they can't take the approach of, oh, I don't understand. I don't really need to understand. And I'm just gonna play the game until these people lose their energy and no longer push or care about the issues. Until they get tired of doing the things that they have to do in order to organize to have voice. Until that time, I'm not gonna do anything. What I would say to our governor is, don't play the waiting game with us because we're not playing. And, and honestly, this doesn't come from having any real scope of the full political realm. That's, that's for Justin to do. This doesn't come from being deeply rooted in, in grassroots work for a long period of time. That's for Ashley to do. This doesn't come from being versed on immigrant rights. That, that's for Pat to do. This just comes from being a Black woman in America tired enough to say, I know my people and I are tired and we're going to make some things happen. Um, so what we have to say will be in paper and submitted to your office and legislative recommendations until our voice is heard. What we have to say will be showing up in testimony during every session and every public hearing that you have. What we have to say will be heard in so many forms and in so many fashions that you cannot sit back and say, well, I don't understand. We're willing to make it clear for you this time, crystal clear. Thank you so very much. You guys are so powerful. I am in awe of you. <laughs> you are going to be doing a lot of great things and please let me know what I can do to support you. And thank you for being here and taking the time to talk to us. I just want to check with Sneha to see if there are any questions that are on the chat. Um, that anyone would like to share. Sneha, do you have any questions? Someone asked about cancel rent. Um, Ashley, I don't know if you saw who did they contact? Becca? Oh, sure. So cancel rent, uh, CT has a Facebook page that I can put here in the chat. Um, we also are calling for tenants who may be in danger of eviction uh, soon to reach out as well. We have a tenant intake form. Um, and anyone who wants to support uh, this campaign to cancel rent, please, please follow Facebook. Please reach out. I also will put in the email address for cancel rent. Uh, we are checking this and we are definitely in need of support. Um, there, as we have all said, there is definitely a power in the people. And we need people power to really move and push this uh, because there's some discussion about canceling rent. Um, you know, there's some discussion saying uh, people just don't want to pay their rent or um, people want to get by. I don't know about the people that they're talking about, but I know the community in which I serve. We want a place to live um, and we want to be safe in that place to live. And if we have to pay for it, we will. But we're at the point where we cannot pay rent. Uh, folks are still unemployed. Um, children are still, our students are still home. 
Um, and we don't know when the schools are going to open back up or if they're going to open back up in September. So there are a few different components to think about this. Uh, and just imagine thousands of families that will be houseless. Um, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's wild that it's June 25th and the eviction moratorium expires July 1st. As of July 1st, according to how it is set right now, landlords will be able to file for eviction, which means there are gonna be a lot of folks. And I the deem the estimate now is around thousands Yikes. of families will be houseless. There's already a homeless crisis, a houselessness crisis in the state of Connecticut. So imagine a thousand more families being out on the street. Um, and we're not just talking about adults who um, may have uh, means and ways of like going to work and take care of themselves. We're talking about whole families. So talking about yeah. generational living, we're talking about the babies. We're talking about my, you know, the parents, caretakers, and we might be talking about Nana and Papa also living out on the streets. Um, I, I would not want to see our major cities be tent cities. And as I know in New Haven, in Hartford, in Bridgeport, it's about 70, close to 78% of those cities are renters. The rest mm -hmm. are, are landlords. So it, think about that, like in the, our major cities, set, over 78, well close to 78% are renters. Um, and when we had the talk with Mayor Bronin, he was concerned about the homeowners. Well, there are only about 20% of those folks in Hartford. Um, so just something to think about what that will look like. I will definitely share the data. Um, I'll put that in right now once I finish talking. But it, it is really something to think about and imagine what that would look like. And then let's move and do something. So I put the petition in the chat. Um, the Facebook page is also in the chat. Um, please, please reach out. We are moving, especially as we get closer to the July 1st date, um, really putting that pressure on uh, Governor Ned Lamont uh, to extend the eviction moratorium um, and to cancel rent. And once you realize that they're like, they're like, once you realize that they're also um, forgiving rent for like the yard goats, it makes it a lot easier to like understand like why people are frustrated. Like the idea is like a lot of the people being affected are living right, right outside that state. Um, there's a general tone deafness. There's a general tone deafness to it. So I think if they're looking for ideas for how to do that, have them do the same thing they did for the yard goats. And I mean, one of the thoughts we thought, Patrick, imagine if we all go lift in a yard goat stadium. What will they say <laughs> then? I mean, it's okay, paid for right? Anyway, right? I it's mean, I got camping gear. I've been in Connecticut long enough that I got a little camping <laughs> gear. And we <laughs> right in Yargo Stadium because I don't have to pay rent there. They rent Mad camp. bathrooms. Mad bathrooms. <laughs> and I know they still got the food. <laughs> Melinda, did you want to add to that? Melinda and Justin, any comments on what you just heard? Uh, as a farmer, I'm, I'm just going to say, I see that the seeds of change are planted. So mm -hmm. it is a season and a time to get to the work. All right. Thank you. Melinda? Nah, just amen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that. that's a wrap, folks. Thank you so very much. You guys are dynamic. I am really happy that you are out there doing this work. Sneha, any last words? 
Uh, no, but does anyone have any questions in the audience? Thank you. Thank you for having us. I know you did one yesterday too, but thank you for like highlighting thank and you. space. We sure. appreciate you, Sneha. Thanks for your work too. Thank Just wanted to like thank you all for being for being here. And I look forward to talking to you guys again on the podcast. So stay close. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Good, good luck, Justin. Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yes, Justin for CT. <laughs> <laughs>